Thank you, Becca, for reading that. It's not the easiest read. There's a lot of names in there that are hard to pronounce. You did it really well, so thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that moment of worship as well, too, Brandon. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we're able to join you together under the influence and power of your word. God, uh, uh, we ask that you would speak through all the insufficiencies and inadequacies uh, that I have to offer, Lord, that you would, that you would uh, um, just bring your spirit into this place, God, as you have. And um, God, let us be sensitive to your leading in our lives. Um, let us not just hear these words with uh, just empty hearts and, and mindless, uh, mindlessness, but God, let us hear these words and, and take them to heart, God. May we come out of this building today uh, just moved and compelled towards um, a deeper and more right prayer life before you. Father, we uh, entrust the next few weeks to you as we uh, spend time focusing on, on this particular act of prayer. We, God, that you, God, we ask that you would speak to us powerfully. Uh, God, and we commit all these things to you, and it's in the power of the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your spot there in 1 Samuel, that's where we will uh, be spending our time today. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Hannah um, is kind of a, a sacred person around here. Um, there's a lot of people who resonate with, with Hannah, and in a lot of ways, our story, my wife and I's story, we, we, we resonate with Hannah, and um, so I'm, I'm excited to talk about this passage, but even more so, I'm excited to just pull from her life some principles of prayer um, that we can apply to our own lives as we think about prayer, just this act of prayer, right, and we're going to define it today, and we're going to explore it today, and we're going to pull out some principles of it. And I'm excited to look at Hannah's life. And as you just heard, she was a faithful woman, a prayerful woman. And we have a lot to learn from her, uh, a lot to learn from the scriptures in this regard. And we just came off of three weeks of talking about the word of God, right? How powerful it is, how authoritative it is, how flawless it is. And we say it all the time that you can't actively know the Lord Jesus Christ apart from his word. But if there was any way that I could define my relationship to the word of God over the last 25 years of being a Christian, it would kind of be like this, complicated. Um, it's been a back and forth relationship. I've been in a lot of weird places. Um, for starters, I know what it's like to start dozens and dozens of Bible studies only my, to make my way through like Leviticus and then to fizzle out, right? Um, you've probably been there. Um, there was a time in my life where I was so convinced that the only time that was proper to, to uh, uh, approach the Lord was in the mornings, because I grew up in a Christian household, and that's kind of one of those Christianese things that you hear, is like, if you don't approach the God, if you don't approach God in the morning, then you're missing out on something, and I still am convicted that it is the best time of day, but you know his word is alive and active at 9 p.m., just like it is at 9 a.m., right, and, and so I would get in this fit where I'd be like, man, I missed my morning time with the Lord, I missed my morning time, so I'll wait till tomorrow morning, and I'll hit it again, and I'll try it again, right? And I just missed the rest of the day. I've been there. All of this to say, I'm just a dude who, who is trying hard at these things, but I have mastered none of it. And if my relationship with the word has been complicated in the past, I tell you, that's just, that just increases when it comes to prayer. It just increases when it comes to prayer. And I just want to tell you that I'm preaching a message today um, that I feel the most inadequate, the most insufficient uh, to give you. There's many of you who would be better equipped here and I out there. And so with that in mind, what we're going to do is we're just going to read the Bible together and learn from it. 
Okay, I have nothing to offer you in this. I've learned very little over the... I'm sure I've learned more than I'm giving myself credit over 25 years. God has grown me in a lot of ways, but... I just want you to know we're going to rely upon the word this morning and, and what God uh, reveals to us in this story of Hannah. Okay. Now, before we get into it, though, I felt like it would be meaningful for us to define prayer. What is prayer? Maybe you're new to the faith or maybe you struggle like I have. You, it's a complicated thing, and so it might help us to just define what prayer is. And so I searched the scriptures. I did my word studies. I looked at the history of prayer, tracking all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. I did all of this stuff, and I tell you what, everything I found was so broad. Turns out the Bible says there's pretty much limitless ways you can approach God, limitless ways uh, and emotions and conditions that you can approach God from Right? If you do a word study, you're going to find out prayer means to, to make a plea to God, to appeal to God, to call upon the Lord, uh, to intercede. Uh, even uh, it's, a, it's a, a worshipful fragrance. Right? All of these things. And so I tried to define it, and what happened is I just got complicated all over again trying to define prayer. So here's our definition this morning from the word, and it's simple, and it's what I want you to know. That prayer... It's really not more complicated than this. Prayer is communication with God. Prayer is communication with God. And I'll go ahead and add this to that. Prayer is communication with God that flows from an abiding relationship with him. Prayer is communication with God that flows from a vibrant, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? It's not complicated, is it? There's really no formula to it outside of that. Now I will say all that and give you one caveat here. There's one thing, right? Conditions, locations, all of that stuff, all of the things that we bring into prayer that we often complicate prayer with. You know, Jesus doesn't seem to be too concerned about that, but there is one thing that he does seem to be concerned about. That's the attitude. The attitude in which we approach him. It doesn't matter where you're at, what you're going through, all that kind of stuff. Um, you, you can approach him at any time. He is interested in you. He did create you after all. He, he, he wants you to thrive in life. But attitude in your approach to God is something to be um, thought about and considered. This seems to be the only exception in, in, in regards to our approach to him in prayer. A proud heart. It's not really accepted. And we get this straight from the scriptures in Psalm 66, 18. The psalmist says that if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have heard my prayer. The Bible also lists off other forms of cherished sin that can actually hinder prayer. For example, if a husband is being inconsiderate and disrespectful to his wife, that can actually hinder his prayer life. Right? That, that comes straight from 1 Peter chapter 3. James tells us that if you pray in doubt or if you pray with wrong motives... That you shouldn't expect to receive anything. In Matthew 6 and in Luke 18, Jesus says over and over again that, that the prideful and the arrogant and those who pray just to look righteous, they should not accept to receive, uh, expect to receive anything. Attitude's a big deal when it comes to prayer. And this is where Hannah helps us out. This is where Hannah helps us out because through her, just through all of this stuff, thankfully the Bible is clear and direct regarding our attitude and approach to God through prayer. So let's look at this story of Hannah together here in chapter 1. And we'll bleed a little bit into chapter 2 as we just kind of survey this story. First of all, we have Hannah. Hannah is this faithful, broken woman. She desperately wants a child. She wants a child. She wants it desperately. But the Lord has closed her womb, the Bible says. It's, a, it's an interesting detail, by the way. The Lord has closed her womb. She's married to a man named Elkanah. 
He seems to be a faithful man. He makes his sacrifices. He goes to the Lord. He was committed, it seems like. He, he was even pretty tender to his wife, Hannah. He kind of understood her need. Um, and, and so, you know, he gave her a double portion of the meat that comes from um, uh, the sacrifice, right? I, I like that, by the way. I, I hope my wife gives me a double portion of meat whenever she feels bad for me. Um, sounds like a good deal. Penina. It's this other woman who, who, along the whole way, she has this desire in her heart that's going unmet by her husband because he can't do anything. It's going unmet by God because he keeps telling her not now. It's a, it's a no. He keeps for years and years. He, he's not granting this desire of her heart. And meanwhile, there's Penina over here who's constantly provoking her, nagging her, tormenting her, bullying her. A terrible woman. Then you have Eli. Eli is this priest, he's a judge over Israel, and he, he, he's the guy that God uses to, to bring encouragement into Hannah's life. Now I want to go and just make this note, think about everything Hannah was going through. All of this stuff that we just acknowledged. So many people, when, when, we can, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to relationship with the Lord, what happens is they just get to this place where they're saying, you know what, I'm not getting what I want I'm being bullied, I'm being nagged along the whole way, I'm on the fence of disgrace with my community. Right? I'm, I'm in this place, and so you know what? I'm done. I'm thrown in the towel. If he's going to keep answering no to me, is he even listening to me? I'm done. I'm going to take it into my own hands. Right? That's what happens for so many people. But with Hannah, we see the complete opposite. Why is that? It's because she has something. She has something of depth, something of, of, of reality, and it is a vibrant, abiding relationship with the Lord. That's our first principle today. If you're making a record of this, we have six principles of prayer that we're going to look at today. And the first is simply this. Prayer is abiding in relationship. It's a big deal. It's abiding in relationship. First of all, you cannot pray to the Lord if you do not know him through the name of Jesus Christ. You can pray, but it doesn't mean that he hears it. The only prayer that he hears from a person who doesn't know him through Jesus Christ is the prayer to receive Jesus Christ. Thus begins your relationship with the Lord, and out of that you have a prayer life that, that can thrive and that can uh, flourish. Okay, so Hannah, she, she put up with all of this stuff year after year, but she was faithful. She was a faithful person, it seemed, right? She, she made her way to Shiloh, to the house of the Lord, made her sacrifices. She was a good church-going Christian. She did it year after year after year. She was faithful in prayer. If you just look at the details of the way she prays to the Lord, you can tell she's experienced. She knows. She's, she's a faithful person. Look, in fact, in verses 12 through 14, look at this. It says, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was one. She was drunk. He thought she was wasted. That's how into prayer she, she was, right? By the way, that's kind of a frequent thing in scripture, right? That Christians look like they're drunk in their worship. It happened in Acts, remember, when the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit and the people on the outside are like, oh my gosh, look how drunk they all are. It's because they're, you know, filled in just worship with the Lord. So he thought she was drunk. That's how in prayer she was. You can't read this story and not understand that, that she had a deep abiding relationship with God. It was there. It was real. Right? But just because prayer is present... So often we think that just because prayer is present that that automatically means an abiding relationship with the Lord. And, it, and it's not that way. 
So let's define what it means to abide, to abide, to dwell in, to live in. It's a constant thing. Jesus says to the disciples in John 15, abide in me and I in you. And he says the same thing to us, that we are to abide in him. It's comprehensive. It's all-inclusive. Right? It's not compartmentalized like, God, uh, I'm a Christian over here. I'll pray to you in this condition, but over here, this is just mine. Let me, let me have this. It's not that. Right? To abide in Christ is to be com- completely filled in Christ. All aspects of your life are his. They're submitted to him. It's completely comprehensive in nature. It's to consume all parts of you, not just your Sunday morning, not just before meals, not just at holidays, not just when things are good or when things are bad, not just around your Christian friends, not just when people are looking, not just when your parents are looking, but at all times. We get that, right? And the best thing I could come up with to to describe this abiding relationship, see, the closest relationship we have on planet Earth with any human that, that reflects Christ's relationship with people and the church in this way is the relationship between a husband and a wife, right? It's the only relationship in scripture that says that two actually become one. So a husband and a wife, let's just think about this. Now, my wife and I, we're not perfect by any means, but we've, we've been married for eight and a half years, and so we've figured some things out, and the more we are together, the more we grow together, the more we understand what it means to be one, to be one, to be one unit, to be one force, aligned in in mission and in purpose and in ministry. She is my best friend. She's my closest advisor. Even when I'm at work and she's at home, we're still aligned. It's kind of mysterious, but we're aligned in spirit, in love, in purpose for ministry and family. When I'm angry or when I'm overjoyed, she's the first one to know about it. And if it's not because, and if I didn't tell her about it, she can even read it on my face. And, And the same is true in reverse. Our schedules are synced, so if she has something coming up and I have something coming up, we know how to approach those things together. We do it together. There's a constant awareness of each other. There's a constant unity between each other. Again, it's not perfect, but it's the closest thing we have to what we're talking about in abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. You abide. It's all inclusive. It's comprehensive. There's not a part of my life that she's not a part of. You understand? There's a constant awareness, a sensitivity to that. This is our relationship with Jesus Christ, and even in fuller measure. But for so often, or, or, or so often, we, we have this idea that, that we know we're supposed to abide in the Lord, but more, more likely than not, oftentimes our lives look like we have this Facebook relationship with the Lord, right? He'll say, hey, on my birthday, and then I don't hear from him, and I don't see him, and he doesn't see me, right? It's just this totally conditional, totally never face-to-face relationship. But we're still considered friends, right? It would be the same as, as me saying, hey, I'm married. I got a wedding band, and, and it's on my Facebook status. I'm married. But if I totally neglected communication and, and, and all the good things of depth of relationship with my wife, how long do you think that relationship is going to last? Not long. Prayer is communication with God that flows from an abiding, comprehensive relationship with God. It is not a heartless habit. It's not just a religious routine, but it is a lifestyle. It is comprehensive. Everything from being on your knees for hours a day all the way to to doing laundry and just filling your house with praise and worship music and just pondering things of the Lord, it all plays a part in this comprehensive relationship with the Lord in prayer. It's abiding. 
you're aware of him, you're sensitive to him, you want to do what he wants you to do, you're constantly in all things in tune with him. That's what it means to abide in relationship, and that's what Hannah had. But also, another principle for us to consider, one that seems pretty obvious. Hannah was humble in heart. Prayer is humble in heart. It is humble. Verses 10 and 11, look with me. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, your servants... Sorry, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used upon his head. Take note there in verse 11. Take note of the adjectives that describe her. She's in anguish. She's weeping, right? The Bible even seems to indicate that she had developed some sort of eating disorder as a result of the stress and misery that she was going through. She was in anguish all the time. But so often when we experience these forms of humility in our lives, circumstances circumstances that bring humility into your life, what's our first inclination? We try to hide it, don't we? We try to cover it up like, oh, no big deal, I I got control of this. Let me ask you this question. How many of you got up this morning, slipped on the ice, quickly got up and looked around to see if anybody saw you? Okay. Quite a few, right? It's your first inclination. We slip and then we fall and we get up and we're like, oh my gosh, I hope nobody just saw me make a fool of myself, you know, because we don't want that. We don't want people to see us that way. My favorite is when we do holidays, and this seems to happen every holiday, Christmas, Thanksgiving, whatever. You get all the cousins together, all the little kids, and they just get rowdy, you know? And so at some point, everybody's in a group. All the kids are just like getting rowdy. And eventually somebody gets whacked in the face with a foot or a toy. And their immediate response is just kind of smile, you know. But then like it hurt really bad. And so they see their mom and they start walking to their mom. And like as they walk, their face begins to change. And then the tears start to come. They want to put on that hard look like, oh, that didn't hurt. But then they, they lose it, you know, on their way to their mom. And then they go off to the room and she comforts him and all that stuff. And then it's back at it, Right? This is our inclination. We like to do this. I tell you, though, Hannah, Hannah did not do this. Hannah took the hints. Hannah looked at her life. She saw everything that was going on. She saw the things that she would have never preferred upon herself in life, all the humble circumstances, and she took the hints. See, humility at its core stems from understanding that God is God and we are not. God is God. And we are not. And her circumstances reminded her of this. And it is out of this understanding that she appealed to the Lord. She was broken. She was in anguish. She was emotionally and physically distressed. And she appeals to the Lord. And she refers herself to what, in what way? Servant. Lord, for, do not forget your servant. Look upon your servant's misery. She understood who she was before the Lord, and this is the only appropriate prayer, or the only appropriate attitude when we join him in prayer, to acknowledge that he is God, we are not. And by the way, she understood who God was too. She didn't just understand who she was before God, but look in chapter 2, verse 2. This is what she has to say about the Lord after her prayer is answered. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. She gets it, right? She gets it. How often do we go to God in prayer like we got control of the whole thing? Like we are God and he's just kind of this benefactor to help us get what we want as we strive and as we push to get what we want, right? Sometimes we approach God this way. 
Prayer is humble. Listen to this. Prayer is unconditional in approach. It's our next principle. Prayer is unconditional in approach. Now we saw Hannah appeal to the Lord in just the lowest place in her life, right? She's being nagged. Uh, everything's kind of working against her. Uh, being uh, in that culture that she lived in, there was just probably this social and spiritual disgrace that was upon her for being a barren woman. She had all of that going on. And she still pursued the Lord, right? But not only that, but later in chapter 2, at the, through chapter 1, God answers her prayers. And in the chapter 2, this is what she has to say. Verse 1, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. She doesn't just pray and pursue the Lord and praise the Lord when things are bad. She does it when they're good too, Right? It's not conditional, but I tell you, there's another piece of her prayer life that was unconditional, and it's even a better test than looking at how they pray in the highs and lows. You need to look at how somebody prays whenever the answer is no. That's a really good test of an unconditional prayer. How do you pray when it seems like the Lord says no to you over and over and over and over again? Hannah teaches some stuff in this regard, and this brings us to our next principle. See, prayer is unconditional in approach. Prayer is also content in the Lord. Prayer is also content in the Lord. Now, we're encouraged often from the scriptures and from other people to just be still in the Lord, to wait upon the Lord, you know, for this to be a principle of our prayer life. It's impossible if you're never content in what the Lord has given you already. If you're never content in the circumstances that the Lord has put in your place already, even if it's a bad circumstance, right? Contentment is huge. It's a, it's a precursor to, to true patience and, and stillness before the Lord. Now let me ask you this question, and it's a bizarre question maybe when you see the answer. Whose fault was it that Hannah could not have babies? Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whose fault was it that Hannah could not have babies? Was it hers? Did she sin or something that God would punish her in this way? Did somebody else do something to her? Why can't she have babies? God didn't allow it. God had closed her womb. This was God's doing. Why in the world would God do this? Surely he knew the kind of grief and suffering she was going to experience. Why in the world would he do this? How long did she go with, a, with the answer no from God? Year after year after year she prayed. She brought her desire before the Lord and God said, not now. No. Not now. I've closed your womb. No. Not now. Why in the world would God do this? Well, I'm not God, so there's probably multiple reasons, but here's one that glares out. Hannah was in the process of learning something here. God had something very intentional for her, something for her maturity and her, her, her spiritual development. He was teaching her contentment, teaching her to be content in the situation that God had obviously put her in. He was the cause of it. These verses and lamentations uh, give us some Give us some understanding maybe. Chapter 3, verses 31 through 33. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. I'm sure she felt cast off at times. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion so great is his unfailing love. 
for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. So he brings grief, but he doesn't do it willingly. What does this tell us? It tells us that, that if there is grief in your life, it is very specific in purpose, that God has a purpose in it. I love this passage. It's a go-to for me in hard times because it reminds us that God allows things to happen. It's clear he does. The Bible even says that he brings grief, but he does not do it willingly. He does not delight in the grief and affliction of his children. But it is through these things that his compassion and his unfailing love is most fully experienced. God caused this form, in Han- this form of grief in Hannah. He closed her womb. Why? So that he may teach her contentment in the love and in the compassion of God. So that she may know God's love and compassion in greater measure even later. And this definitely plays out in her life. I think she learns this in this moment. I think this is a turning point for her. Right? Perhaps her prayers before were more all about the circumstances where now she's finally praying in trust to him. Right before she was just praying that Ponida would, would shut up, that she would have the desire in her heart met, that she wouldn't be um, uh, disgraced anymore by the, being barren. But in verse 11, her prayer changes and, and she vows to the Lord that she will give him her son and that no razor will be used on his head, which essentially means that he'll be a Nazarite, that he will be consecrated to the service of God. We'll talk about what that looks like for Samuel down the road. Now, Hannah knows she has nothing to offer, right? When you make a vow to God, it's not because you're like, oh, I got something that God can't have. I got something that God really, really wants, so I'm going to give it to him so I can get what I want. It's, it's not that way. She, did, she understood that, right? This is a prayer of contentment. Of acknowledging that any son or child that she may have is truly God's anyways. It's not hers. It's a gift from him. She finds some contentment in her current situation. And we see this because it's a wonderful detail. We know that this was a turning point for her because she walks away and her face is no longer downcast. Look at verses 17 and 18. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something. And her face was no longer downcast. I love that. It's pretty cool when contentment takes tangible effect, isn't it? Who knows how long she had been suffering from these things, year after year after year. But now she comes to this place, she understands that the Lord has created this whole situation of grief for her and so she prays to the Lord and she comes away and her face is lifted it's no longer downcast she eats something finally isn't that amazing God taught her something that he could not teach her unless she had this grief in her life it was pivotal point for her and I want to make one side note on this idea of contentment it is essential if you truly desire patience to be able to wait on the Lord. It is truly essential if you desire to be able to wait on the Lord. Who has ever had a hard time with that concept? Waiting on the Lord. That's like the opposite of the American dream, right? That's the opposite of everything where that's instilled in us to wait on the Lord. Contentment is the way. So let me tell you what happens. Hannah, she gives birth to a son. She names him Samuel. God has heard. That's what Samuel means. And she names him that because she says, because I asked the Lord for him. 
right? Verse 20, she asked the Lord for him. God heard and gave her a son. His name's Samuel. God has heard me. She, she nurses the boy until she's three, until he's three, right? And then he's weaned. He, he, she, she takes him to uh, the, the house of the Lord, and she hands him off to Eli and says, he, he is yours now. I made a vow with the Lord. He, he's yours. And so from the age of three on, Eli actually raises Samuel. And chapter 2 tells us that uh, later on, it tells us that Hannah, she still was able to see Samuel, and she kind of gave him some gifts, but she saw him once a year when they made their way to the house of the Lord to make the sacrifice. She had truly handed off her son to the work of the Lord, to, consecrated him to the work of the Lord. This is huge. That's huge, right? That's a really hard thing to do. And so Samuel was raised by Eli. The Bible says that he grew in stature and favor with the Lord and people. And this brings us to our next point, the next principle of prayer. Prayer is missional in purpose. Missional in purpose. It aligns with the will of God. You see, God did some work in Hannah's heart in the place of contentment, right? He, he did that work. And so it's through that work that Hannah offers her son to the Lord, to the Lord's work, to the Lord's mission, right? So there was purpose in all of this, and God knew it all along, but Hannah, for Hannah, it was a process, right? It was a process. So let's try to paint this picture. Samuel, he goes, Eli raises him, he grows up, he becomes kind of a, kind of a pillar in regards to just uh, the Lord's people. He was, people knew who Samuel was, right? He's the last judge in the history uh, uh, of Israel, of God's people, Samuel. Samuel was used for crazy things. For example, Samuel, um, um, it was Samuel that the people came to Samuel and said, hey, we, we're done with all of this. We want a king. All of these other nations have a king, but, but we as God's people, we don't have a king. Right before this, they acknowledged God as their king. Judges were just there to, to help with some issues. And so Samuel goes, God is your king, but if you really want a king, okay, we're going to make this happen. But you're going to regret it. Right? And they do regret it. Remember that? So God uses Samuel in that whole process. But then God kind of redeems the whole thing because he has great plans for this young boy, this shepherd boy named David. And God speaks to Samuel and says, I want you to go get this guy. And it is actually Samuel who goes, gets David, anoints him, appoints him, is there for him, and, and is crucial to David's kingship. He, Samuel paves the way. God uses Samuel to bring David into the king that he was. A man after God's own heart. Sure, full of mistakes. He made some bad mistakes. But he's King David, right? One of the greatest psalmists of, of scripture. And if you want to carry it out even further, who, who, what line did Jesus come from? The Messiah. He came from the line of David, did he not? To think that God knew all of this stuff to think, you know, we can see now in retrospect that Hannah's related to Jesus in this way. To think that God knew all of this. He knew what he was going to do. He knew that the Messiah was going to come. He knew how effective David was going to be. And it all tracks back to the prayers of a broken woman who wants a kid. You see that? Isn't that awesome? And it comes down to that place where God did this work in her heart to bring her to a place of contentment. And it was out of that that God unleashed something that Hannah could have never fathomed at the start. The Lord worked on her heart. She submitted her desire to him, to his mission, to his will. She gave her son to him. And it raises these questions in our own life. You know, when you pray, what's the point? 
What are you praying for? What are you praying about these days? What am I praying about these days? Are they just heartless repetitions of things that we don't really understand? What's even the purpose? For whose will is it? Is it simply absence of purpose because it is just heartless and routine? Is it for the purpose of convenience maybe or personal comfort or personal gain of some kind or personal pleasure? Or do we submit our prayer to, to the will of the Lord? Do your prayers aim to fulfill God's mission and, and spiritual growth in your life? Is there purpose to them? Right? This is a principle of prayer that we see in Hannah. She gave her son to the Lord. She, she had that acknowledgement. Lastly, the last principle, prayer is strengthening in faith. Prayer is strengthening in faith. And I won't spend too much time on this because it's kind of a silly question to ask at this point. But I'm going to go ahead and ask it. Do you think Hannah grew in her faith through all of this? Or do you think she digressed? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? This was a growing experience for her. And this brings us to our final thought and the question that I want us to consider over the next three weeks. Right? We focus a lot of energy around here by saying... You know, the word of God is living and active, and you can't know Jesus Christ without the word of God in your life. We say it all the time, don't we? We just focused on it for like about three weeks, and we hit it hard. It's something that you hear all the time. You cannot know and know or grow in Jesus Christ apart from the word of God. I want to ask you a question. Is this, this, is this also true when it comes to prayer? Is this also true when it comes to prayer? Is it possible to grow in relationship with Jesus Christ apart from prayer? I got a silly story for you, but when I thought about this question, this is what came to my own mind. And, and through it, I think God just kind of revealed something through my own silly behaviors. You know, I, I love experiences. Um, I love eating out. I love taking my kids to the bowling alley and let, letting them play. I love food. I love all of these things. And so, as you can I would imagine I have a hard time sometimes controlling my spending, my money, you know what I mean? And I'm frequently convicted from the word of God because God has a lot to say about money and I never want it to be, to, to master me. And so there are a lot of times where out of conviction from the word, truly, I feel the need to, to budget, uh, to get some control, right? So here's how the process goes. This has happened how many times in the last eight and a half years? At least four or five, right? It took a while to take, but it's finally starting to take a little bit. Here's how it goes. I'm convicted by the word on the subject. I realize I need to not let money be my master. I, I realize that I need to get going with some sort of plan here. So I bring the need before Kinsey. We talk about it as, as a little family. I do some research and, uh, on budgeting programs and systems and strategies, and then I pick the, bless, the, the best plan that seems to work for us. We say a quick prayer, you know, God, take this budget and blah, 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 and then we get on with it, right? We incorporate it into our lives. I'm really excited about it, hopeful about what God might do through it. One month down the road, we're a little more aware of our spending. Nothing's changed, we just know what we're spending money on now, right? A little more financially conscious. Three months down the road, I start thinking, you know, maybe this plan isn't like the best plan. There's other ones out there that I need to research because it's, you know, the, with how they have it broken up with the percentages and stuff on this, I don't think it's six months down the road. We had a budget? Right? That, that's the line. And then a year later, I'll get convicted again and try it again. 
right? That's what it really seems to come down to. And as silly as that is, it's, it's so true. And, and I was thinking about this. And there's other things in my life, by the way, that this happens. I was thinking about it. And I was like, what in the world was missing? I had the conviction. I had the zeal to actually put it into place, to practice some, some good planning here, to strategize. But when I think about it, I realize that outside of just praying for it initially, there was no consistent, persistent invitation for God to change my heart on the issue. It's really hard to grow spiritually without a changed heart. Did you know that? It's impossible. And so for me, this is how I would answer it. The answer to the question, no, it is not possible to grow in Jesus Christ apart from a prayer, from, from, from prayer that flows out of abiding relationship with him. It's not possible. I will say this too, because I've experienced it, yes, it is possible to have a zeal for the name of Christ, to be in his word, to have many moments of strong-willed obedience and passion that just diminish just as fast as they came. The more and more I think about all of this, the more I'm convinced that it is through prayer combined with the word that increases our faith, that makes us sensitive to, to the Spirit's leading in our lives, that truly grows us in Christ. Think of it this way. If we receive our conviction from the word of God, it is prayer that makes it stick. If you've experienced what I've experienced, if we receive our conviction from the word of God, it's prayer that makes it stick. Prayer is of the utmost importance. It is vital for an increasing faith and walk in Jesus Christ. And here's the really exciting part, and we're going to close with this. The really exciting part that is if you begin to dig into this, right, my guess is if you haven't done it for a while, you're going to take a stab at it this evening and have no idea what you're doing, right? Well, join the club. I tried to pray with Kenzie like a night ago, and I was like, I just feel like a huge hypocrite right now. Like, I don't know how to enter into that, but I'm going to ask her to pray with me, and we're just going to, we're going to carve our way through it, right? It happens, right? I get it. But if we press into it, if we press into it, and we press into it in faith and humility and all of these things, here's the awesome promise from Scripture, that all of these principles that we just discussed, they will all of a sudden become places of growth in your life. What you practice is what you get good at. And if we practice a, a prayer that flows out of relationship with him, you will grow in your relationship with him. If you practice praying in humility, the more humble you will become. If you practice praying unconditionally, the more, or sorry, the less that your, your prayer life will revolve, ebb and flow around the conditions in your life. The more you practice contentment, the more content you will become. The more you practice praying for his will and his mission to be done in your life, the more you will grow in being mission-minded and gospel-minded. The more you pray in faith and believe that he can actually do what you're asking, the more you will grow in faith. Isn't that awesome? Don't you guys want that? Don't you want that for your families, for your lives, for your own personal life? Don't you want that for this church? Do, uh, we, we don't presume upon the Lord to think that he'll do anything remarkable in this place without that, do we? Because he won't. It is prayer. It is a faith that moves mountains. I love everything that's going on here. I love it. The place is looking good. Everybody's really nice. We can't expect that he's going to do remarkable things if we completely miss on this. We can't. So instead of closing in prayer this morning, just for transitional sake, I'm going to go ahead and invite Brandon and praise him up. We're going to begin to just play uh, a song.
And I just want to give you a few minutes to just consider these things in your own heart. This altar is open for you if you feel like you just need to make an act to just bow before the Lord. You can bow in your seat if you want. You can drop to your knees. I don't care what you do. But this is your time for a few minutes to just honestly and humbly bring your own prayer life before the Lord. To run your, your prayer lives through this grid. Is this a place where you're growing? Is this a place where you are, you're taking steps of faith and maybe you don't quite know what's going on? Is this something that you've just taken a total apathetic approach to? Maybe you're here today and you've been praying, you've been praying, you've never even getting, given your life to Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, the only prayer you need to be concerned with this morning is the prayer to give your life to him, to receive him as Lord and Savior over your life. I'm telling you, you don't know him until you give your life to him. And from there, my gosh, you can have a prayer life that flourishes. You can begin to see his work in your life. Some of us, I feel, just need to come to a place of just bowing our hearts and our minds before him and just letting him reconstruct, decomplicate the way that we've been approaching him lately. So this time is here, just a few minutes. You can do with it what you want. We'll start to play a song and we'll end the service that way. This time is yours. Thank you.